Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Kate Chapman knew at a young age that Broadway was the answer to where she wanted to be. She made it, though it wasn't easy, with performances ranging from Les Mis to the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. In the last decade, she's become more and more interested in helping others with their health via both health and life coaching, though she doesn't think she'll ever stop singing. We talk about how she kept hope alive while waiting for her big break, how her own health journey led her to coaching, and how the health system is often stacked against consumers. Kate even sings a song for us, one she wrote. And we fangirl over Martha Beck and Elizabeth Gilbert a little, too. Here's my conversation with Kate Chapman. Kate Chapman, welcome to the podcast. I am so eager to dig into your story. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. I'm so happy to be here. I I do not normally start an interview reading a list of things off of someone's bio, but in your case, I feel like I need to because you've been on Broadway for quite a while and have quite the list of credits from Mary Poppins to Les Mis, Pajama Game, Sweet Smell of Success, Saturday Night Fever, five years as Mrs. Claus at Radio City, Shakespeare in the Park, Lincoln Center. I mean, it it's like it doesn't stop. So I am so curious to know about your creative journey and how you got to Broadway. Did you start acting and singing as a kid or was it something you found later or? You know, it's interesting. First of all, I remember, I don't ever remember not singing. So I know that I've been doing that since the age of two or three or so. But it's, but I just got a Facebook post from my childhood ballet teacher, a woman named Lynn Talbot Kale. And she posted this thing saying, I remember you being a semi-obnoxious nine-year-old who told me that you were going to be on Broadway. And I thought, yeah, right, kid. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you showed me. Um, so, I mean, I think it was just sort of something that I, that I just... I don't know, for some reason, I heard about Broadway and I heard Broadway shows and I thought, that's the answer. That's where I want to be. So did you start taking lessons when you were still a kid or? Yeah, so I did a lot of community theater. I sang in my church. I took voice lessons and dancing lessons. And then I went to school, actually, to get a music education degree. Uh, My parents thought it was very important that I had, you know, something to fall back on, quote unquote, to get a real job with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also got a minor in opera. So I was a vocal performance minor. And then I just did that to get the technique. I had been uh, advised by a family friend who... uh, had already gone to Broadway and, and he had said, you know what? Opera technique is good technique. So I did that. And, but I just always, the New York was always the plan. Broadway was always the plan. Where were you growing up? Ohio. Okay. A little rural town. It, um, just, it's all farms where I grew up. So did your parents react the same way that other teacher did? Like, yeah, right. Sure you will. Or were they, you know, totally behind you the whole way, no matter what? Um, my, 
so my father, I think, was like, yeah, kid, you know, if you hear me making noise, I just have to put my old dog on the floor. <laughs> when he decides he wants something, he wants it now. And that's what it is. So I'm going to let him have his moment. Um, you know, my dad, I think, always was kind of a little bit like, uh, why, why did I get this child? <laughs> Um, but my mom loved music and she was from LA and she had family members that were in the film and television business. And so I don't think for her, it was that foreign of an idea. Um, and so she just always supported me, you know, she was like, I'll try to help as much as I can. And she has, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, I really was lucky about that. And, and she said she's told me as, as now that she used to have people that would come up to her and they'd be mad at her for telling me that I could make it on Broadway, that, that she was not doing me any favors by telling me that. So, you know, that's sort of an interesting thing to think about. But I think it says a lot about the culture that I grew up in, which was very... Um, simple in its focuses, you know, I mean, not many people left. Mm -hmm. Do you know how your mother responded when people would say that to her? I think she probably was just probably silent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> went off. I think she probably just listened to them and moved on. Um, but no, I should ask her. No. Yeah, I because don't know. it's, I mean, there is certainly that conventional wisdom that says, you can't do that, except that obviously people do. Right. And, you know, I've talked to enough people at this point to know what a huge difference it makes when you realize as a kid that you have a creative dream and the response from your parents isn't cut it out. You know, you're going to work in the grocery store business at, you know, you'll take over the store after I retire and that's what your life is going to be. You know, the parents who encourage their kids, it is so much easier for their kids to succeed. It's, it's massive yeah, difference. Definitely. definitely. Because I, you know, when you lose faith in yourself along the way, you just have someone else saying, you know what, it's okay to believe in your dreams and they'll be hard. Yeah. Um, you know, and I can't say that, you know, I mean, she got tired of it after a while too. There was a certain point where she was like, how long are you going to get at this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, nobody has any right to tell you what your life is going to be like. They don't know. Right. Yeah. It takes many twists and turns because I never, I never thought that I'd be at the age, I'm 51. I never thought I'd be at this age and thinking about anything other than Broadway. Right. But life changed and it changed a few years ago when I became a caregiver. And now while I love performing and being on stage and all of that, I have a greater focus, which is to really support um, others in their journeys. And I've learned a few ways to do that. And so, you know, that's really my focus now instead of the singing and dancing, which I guess is good because there's not a whole lot of singing and dancing going on right now. Not so. at the moment, though I have seen footage of, you know, the triumphant reopening that has looked pretty amazing. So... Here's hoping that it will only get safer and safer for people to go actually see a show. I want to talk about what you're doing now, but I want to make sure that we 
give your Broadway journey its due. So you mentioned a friend who was on Broadway, which must have been helpful too, who told you to go study opera. Did you know that... what? He has, he has never been helpful to me other than that one. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And he was in a position to help me many times. And so, wow. And so that one has been a, a tough pill for me to swallow. And so I will not say his name. Fair enough. But, but uh, yeah, I thought it would be helpful. It, it, it ended up being more like, well, then I've just got to prove it that I, I meant I was meant to be here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yet you obviously did. Yeah. I mean, when, when you were doing your bachelor's, were there people there who said, yeah, we think you can do this? Or was it more, uh, I'm supposed to be here getting my backup degree. So I'm not going to tell you that this is my crazy dream because I don't want to hear you, you know, criticize or say I can't do it or whatever. So I, I went to Boston University, which is a conservatory program inside of a liberal arts college. So it's a really great situation because you got really unbelievable conservatory teachers, but then I also had the liberal arts side of it, which, which was really cool. My voice teacher was a 73-year-old grand dame opera and she opera diva and she introduced herself to me. Mary Brewster Davenport of the Massachusetts Brewsters. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm already lost. Like just the introduction and I'm lost, right? But she was a really fascinating, unbelievable mentor for me. And she always knew that I wanted to do Broadway. And what she hoped to do was to inspire me to love classical singing enough to just really enjoy the beauty of it. And so we did that together. And she just taught me all of the, the, the composers she loved and all of the languages that she loved to wrap her mouth around. And I just had a really fun exploration with her. And she would say things that were shocking to me and educational and... Um, so I was always very supported. And in my senior year, I gave a musical theater recital and I started it with all that jazz and I hopped up on the piano and I <laughs> lay down on the, on the grand piano. And when the last time I saw Mary, uh, just about a year before she passed away, she, she was getting a little dementia, but she, she was sitting in the living room and her sister was there as well. And she said, Oh, chick, do you remember when she jumped on the piano? Mm. <laughs> she sounds like she must have been quite a character. Oh, I loved that woman. I just unbelievably lucky to have her as my mentor. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then so, I moved, so I moved to New York, you know, just with this great vocal technique. And I had done a couple of summer stock seasons while I was in college. And I also made my professional stage debut my sophomore year in college in a brand new uh, show that they filmed for American Playhouse Theater. And so that was my professional debut at 18 was being on TV with Mary McDonald, who had just done Dances with Wolves. And wow. And I, I, it was just like a fit. My, my career started as a fairy tale. I was in a college production. They had scouts in the audience. 
asked me if I wanted to audition for their production. I said, okay. Uh, the artistic director used to talk about how I was the last person on the last day and they were losing hope. And then I walked in and I answered, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it started out very auspiciously and it seemed like it was going to be a very easy career. And that wasn't true. I moved to New York and it took me um, nine years to get my first Broadway contract. Um, and I'd done a bunch of benefits and things like that beforehand, but it, but it took me nine years to get an actual Broadway contract. Wow. But you didn't lose heart and give up. I lost heart a lot, but I just, I loved the art form so much. And I loved, I loved the feeling of when an audience got to be transported. Mm-hmm. I loved the way that the room changed how it felt and that I was a part of that. And so I just, that's like the drug. That's what you, that I kept always going back for was to be in that room and to feel the molecules shift. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah. That would definitely do it. So how did you keep yourself going for those nine years? I mean, um, did you just go see shows or were you doing smaller productions or? So I, I made a joke that I always would say that I worked once a year, whether I needed it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so like it would always seem that about the time that I thought I just couldn't take it anymore, some really lovely thing would drop in my lap and it would give me hope. But the, but the bigger answer is that I joined an organization 24 years ago called the Broadway Inspirational Voices. And I have been singing in the Broadway Inspirational Voices for all of that time. Um, and that is the way that I've been able to keep faith, to keep um, vocal strength, because man, do we sing some really difficult music. Um, it's community, it's, we do outreach work that's really great, arts education work that's really wonderful. And I love doing that, because that was my degree. Um, yeah, so so that is the bigger picture is that I found an artistic outlet for myself that was constant, that wasn't about me auditioning and begging to be a part of it. I can see where that would be valuable in multiple ways, especially that community aspect. You know, you're not on your own. You're around all these folks who are, you know, interested in more or less the same thing. <laughs> similar goals and and it makes it a little bit more real yeah i can sing in new york even if it's not exactly what i had in mind yet i can come do this thing it's always here and i feel great when i do it because i'm challenged and you know okay this works and i also got to i also got to watch a lot of members rise um and i got to i got to be inspired by where they were going one of our original members uh is billy porter Wow. And Billy, and Billy I, I stood next to him for, you know, 20 years and just watched that man learn how to tell his story so beautifully. I mean, he was always just madly talented, but just to watch him, you know, grow and change and be is, is incredible. And there's a long list of names like that, but Billy's probably the most, you know, the most well-known at the moment. But so that was really fun too, is to just, 
watch others just continuing to make cool things and to be a part of cool projects. So what happened when you finally got your first Broadway gig? So I had been in class for years uh, with a man named Craig Carnelia as my teacher, and he's a composer and lyricist. And um, if I was not, if I was in town, I was in class. I just was really diligent about it. And whatever I had to do to pay that money to go to class, I did it. My mom helped, you know, I just was there. And I made connections through there. There, We had pianists that came through that were music directors and they invited me to do things. And um, my first Broadway show was actually Saturday Night Fever. And I was just a standby pit singer in the last couple of weeks of the show. And that was through one of the pianists that had done, uh, had been in the room with Craig, invited me to you know that he just heard me. It was his place to do that and he did that. And then my second Broadway show was the original Broadway cast of Sweet Smell of Success, which Craig was the lyricist on. And again, I had been in his class for so many years that he knew my work and he invited me to audition. And actually, I think now, actually, I think he gave me the reading first. And then I actually had to re-audition for the Broadway show. But I worked on that show for about four years through the development process and then through its very short run. <laughs> Wow. So then did it, is it one of those things where once you get that little bit of momentum going, it's a whole lot easier to keep going or did it still stay a challenge to keep getting goals? I mean, yes and no. Like I had a really nice momentum going um, and I was known as a certain type. Mm -hmm. And then I went and changed my type. I was a character actress and I could pull off a lot of older roles because I was carrying a lot of extra weight and it just aged how I looked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I lost a hundred pounds and it changed how I looked. <laughs> just a little. <laughs> a little bit. And, um, and so, and then I also was turning 40 around that time too. And so that's also when the career kind of drops off a lot. Mm-hmm. There's just fewer jobs for people over 40 on Broadway. Um, And so then it got really, really, I mean, I had gone from going to show, to show, to show, to show, to just nothing. I had nothing for five years, like just crickets. Wow. And so I, I was just climbing the walls doing my day job and I decided to go back to school. And so I went and got my health coaching training and then I went to Goddard and I got my, um, master's degree. And then I went and did life coaching training. And I just found that all of that was really a great pairing to my world of an, as an actress. Um, and so I was really actually kind of in the end, happy that I'd had that, that just (laughs) time of nothing. So that I was really forced to figure out something else to just get me, you know, stimulated in life. Right. When you say that the coaching was a good pairing with acting, do you mean in an artistic way or more in a, this is something that can just fill the time while I'm waiting for something to come or before rehearsals or uh, just. I mean, it's all of it. One of it's, one of the things that's great is that I can do it from anywhere. I, mm-hmm. I, so, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm rehearsing a show somewhere out of town or if I'm traveling for some reason, I can still work with my clients. Um, the interesting thing about acting 
is that there's, there's a lot of intuitive listening that goes into it. And so I've just, I've polished those skills over the years. And, and there's also a curiosity about an actor. You're always wanting to kind of get into the nuts and bolts of things. Um, and as an actor, you, you really, it's best to not judge your character that you're playing. Um, and so those are all really useful skills for clients. Like, I don't want to judge somebody that comes to me. It's not, I'm just there to help them figure out their, their stumbling block. Amen. It's not for me whether to say whether it's good, bad, yes. I, that is not my place. And so I've learned that really well through all of these characters that I've, that I've played and just learned to approach them with a, a curious heart. Um, and just the listening skills that I've, I've, you know, Broadway is about a lot of active listening, you know, night after night, it's the same story, but you're listening to the set pieces move and the audience's reaction and your, your coworkers. And if there's any sort of shouts in the wings, cause things fall on your head, not often, <laughs> but you know, these are things that you, that you, you've got to keep yourself aware in a full way. Yeah. You can't um, do it on autopilot. I mean, we call it phoning it in and you can, but generally something not so good happens. <laughs> right. Right. Not advisable. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you did the health part first mm -hmm. and that was in response to caregiving or was that something that you were interested in before then? I was interested in it because, okay, so I lost the weight initially because of two things. One, well, three things. One, I didn't feel well. I just, I had, I had gained more weight than my body wanted to carry. So I wasn't feeling well. Um, number two, I had, I was recently married and I had a, a young stepson and I just, I just wanted to show him a different example than was, I was showing, I, right? I just wanted to show up in a different way. And so that was important. And then really what kicked me over the edge, honestly, was that a friend of mine offered me my dream role, but it was Evita. It was Ava Peron and Evita. Ah. And I was too heavy to play the role. So. Boy, that's um, an incentive. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I had a year, I had a year to get the weight off. I didn't get all of it off that I wanted. I was still about 25 pounds heavier than I ultimately ended up being, but um, eh, whatever. I did real well. Um, <laughs> and, and it, and in the, in the course of losing the weight though, the way that I did it this time was really different than ever before. Cause I'd done a bazillion million diets. I had terrible disordered eating. I had all of these things that were like, all right, you can do this, but you gotta be smarter this time and, and go about it in a different way. And so I went about it in a, in a really gentle self care, kindness, coddling myself almost way. Um, and it worked and lo and behold, all of these lifelong diseases that I'd also been managing, those also disappeared Ooh. And for the first time that I could ever remember. Cause I was a sick kid in and out of children's hospital all the time. The first time I could ever remember, I was absolutely just well. Wow. And I thought, how did I do that? 
And so going to the health coaching and then into the master's degree was all about just trying to like synthesize for myself, how did I do that? So that if somebody else comes to me and says, how did you do that? I could tell them. Sure. And then I discovered that a lot of health coaching was people coming to me to be their magic pill. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, that wasn't the fullness of what I wanted to do. Um, and at the same time, my uncle got ill. So the health coaching practice kind of ended up coming to a, an easy stop because mm-hmm. then I was a 24 seven caregiver to a man that had dementia and Parkinson's. So it was, you know, he was m- all of my attention for the year and a half that I was there. Um, and when I came out of it, I realized that I still wanted to be coaching and supporting people, but I wanted to have a, a slightly broader lens. And so that's why I did the life coaching training then. And you picked Martha Beck's program. I'm so jealous. Oh, she's <laughs> delicious. Love her. Just oh, it's a delicious program. Everybody that she hires on her staff, I've loved all of them. I've been so grateful for that community, which continues on. I still have people in that community that um, we just had a, a little Zoom today. So I highly recommend the gift to yourself of more Martha Beck in your life. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you can ever have too much Martha Beck. I've done all of her practical wayfinding courses in the last year, and they've all been a year and a half, I guess. They've all been absolutely phenomenal. And I'm almost finished her new book, which is just ah, blowing my mind on every single page. So so when I say I'm jealous, I really mean it. I'm happy to share whatever Martha with you I can because um, she really should be spread and shared to those everywhere. How did you come to pick her program in particular? I mean, there are so many. I have been um, following Martha's work, like, because we're on first, I've never met her. Martha's work, <laughs> like, we're right. not. She's just my mentor that she's, that she's never met me. Um, I'd been reading her columns in O Magazine for 20 years. I'd seen her when she'd popped up on the Oprah Winfrey show. I'd read most of her books. Um, My dream was for my 50th birthday, I wanted to go to Londolozzi to do her African star thing. Yes. (laughs) And I was going to do it, but if I had done it, it would have taken every single penny that I had and some that I didn't have. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and I just didn't want to go into my fifties, like in debt because of a trip. And so instead I chose to go to Fiji to work with Liz Gilbert for a week. Nice. And it was a third of the money and it happened because it happened right before COVID started. Whereas Londa Lozzi 2020 got. Ooh, that's timing. Yeah. Wow. So I want to hear more about that, but before we get too far away from it, I am curious to know, since you mentioned that, you know, health issues disappeared and and everything with the way that you approached your weight loss, do you think that that has anything to do with the self-care element of how you approached it or like the, the mental piece of it on top of the actual loss? Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely was the fact that for the first time I looked inward to figure out what I needed rather than asking someone else their opinion of what I needed. And I had been kind of a, not kind of, I was a medical addict. I 
I, I had so many specialists and I would go through so many procedures and I just, if it was their opinion that I needed it, absolutely. I will find a way to make that happen because you know, right. And then that wasn't working for me. I just kept getting kind of feeling lousier and lousier and lousier. Um, and beneficially I lost my health insurance at one point. And so I couldn't, and it was at the point that I was doing this, you know, more self-care based thing. And so I couldn't go to the doctor. And so I had to turn more inward, you know, just from that fact. And so it kind of like became this kind of dance that happened over time. But I definitely believe it's because I started to have a relationship with my needs instead of asking other people who aren't living with my needs to be having that relationship. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because I mean, there's, there are so many miracles that medical science can pull off. And yet there are some moments that I can point to, you know, where I've found myself saying to someone or trying to figure out how to say to someone in a white coat, I just have this feeling like my body doesn't want to take this pill anymore. And, you know, bracing myself for the, what are you talking about? That's crazy. It doesn't work like that. And I'm like, I, I understand that. But my overwhelming feeling is it's done. Yeah. And it's trying to tell me that it's done. Yeah. So what else can we do? Because I don't think that any way we can continue to try to tweak this is going to do anything. Which doesn't mean that we all should be diagnosing ourselves every day of the week. But, you know, I think there are moments when you have this sense and you can't really explain it, but it's there screaming at you and you do need to listen to it. Yes. And I also think that as consumers of the medical system that we currently have, we can all have, we like you can just talk to any person on the street and they've all got a story that is like where it went wrong for a moment or for whatever. And I feel bad for people in the medical profession who are just doing really what they were trained beautifully to do. But a couple of things. One, there's no way to train one person to be able to do everything for everyone. And number two, um, a lot of the ways in which they weren't trained is just because we haven't known about things like energetic medicine. We haven't had enough conversations and enough. Um, community around that to be able to get a way to teach it that's serviceable. And what I would love to see happen is that the medical community at this moment when it is having problems because it's over, you know, it's under the weight of a system that wasn't functioning very well to begin with and now a pandemic on top of it. Right. So, so it's a double whammy and it would be really nice in this moment if they would say, okay, wait a second. What other skill sets are in the healing communities out there that would be here that would help us as, as doctors, physicians, patients, the, the whole system? And, I, and some people are doing that, like Dr. Daniel Amen at his clinic, he has health coaches that are in there working with his patients. Um, there's a couple other physicians in New York City I know of that, that actively have embraced these kind of other modalities, you know, like nutrition, like Reiki, like acupuncture, all of these things. So it's starting to happen, but I've worked as a, a medical advocate enough to know 
that it's not nearly in enough places, and that there is a very strange reaction of a lot of people in white coats to laugh at that which they don't understand. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I can understand not wanting to take Reiki, which doesn't have as much science you know, and study behind it and whatever, as seriously as you'd want to take oncology. But at the same time, one of the things that really blew my mind a few years ago was when I realized that doctors really barely get any kind of nutrition education. You would think that would be so basic that they would really know how to, you know, what's what and what to recommend. And they really don't. And so people get bad advice about that all the time. And that alone can make a huge difference. She says, not as a medical expert, but just, you know, on its face, if you're eating Cheetos instead of, you know, having vegetables, your body is going to react differently. So... Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we've got some really interesting systems going on that make all that happen. So number one, only 25% of medical schools actually even teach any nutrition at all. So you've only got a quarter of the programs. Last I checked the stats on that. You only have a quarter of the programs that are teaching any nutrition at all. And inside that nutrition, it's only one class. So it's nothing, right? Meanwhile, if you study with a plant medicine person, they will tell you plant medicine is so vast, you know, one, one class, you know, you can do 10 years and only scratch the surface. So there's, there's that part of it. Um, but the other part of it is that we have some systems in place, you know, like the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, that are also very closely tied with food lobbies. And when I say food, I don't mean nutritious substances that help you out. You know, things like Cheetos are funding the people that are talking about what we should do for heart health. So there's conflict of interest in the name of commerce all throughout our system, which is mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think too, like, I don't know if they still do this, but, you know, 20-ish years ago when low-fat everything was the big thing and junior mints had the label on them that said a fat-free food as if that was a health food. <laughs> and I'm like, sure, but all the sugar in there is going to mess with you in a big way if you make that a huge part of what you're eating and nobody's talking about that. Yeah. Well, even all of the food pyramids that we grew up on, those were paid for by grain lobbyists. You know, nobody needs seven to nine servings of grain a day. You don't. Unless if you're a cow, maybe. But <laughs> actually, cows eat cows grass. grass. <laughs> so not even them. You know, I, I think it's yeah. a very strange idea. Um, you know, so so when I, and it's interesting, when I was caregiving full-time, you know, you really get, you really get a lot of this stuff bombarding you, right? Um, because you're in the system with the patient. And so, and I'm always nosy about how the system works and why. That's where my curiosity takes me, you know, in terms of things is I'm always wanting to know, why does this function like it does? You know, why does the patient have so little say once they're in the hospital? You know, why, why are these systems set up this way? And so uh, I found it to be very interesting um, and also a, a way to be very creative about how can I help my fellow consumer with the things that I've learned. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, somebody needs to help consumers sort the wheat from the chaff. 
Yeah. Cause it's too big. And especially when you've gotten a diagnosis, cause then it's scary. Mm-hmm. So you've got fear on top of all this, you know, uh, really dense stuff to kind of look through. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that we get back to Fiji and Liz Gilbert <laughs> because I just know there's stories in there and there's songs in there and all sorts of other good things. So was that the first time that you ever worked with her? Well, so Liz Gilbert, I just have liked her, um, her writing forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was the keynote speaker and I just was a participant. But what she said on her website was that she would be there the whole week taking classes with all the participants. And so I thought, well, I wrote this song inspired by her book, Big Magic, and I want to sing her my song. And so this would be a really easier way to do it than like, you know, you can't do it at a book signing or you can't do it at like any of those kind of things. And, And also I've been around enough celebrities to know I'm just not that girl. I don't ever do that. So I always want it to be in a space where, you know, they feel protected as well Mm because it's a lot, you know? And so, uh, after we were there for a few days, um, and I, and I felt the, the climate of things and she'd done her main portion of her work. I went and I sang her my song that I wrote that was inspired by big magic. And how did she react? She laughed in all the right places, (laughs) which I appreciated very much. And, uh, you know, we, we just chatted about it afterward and she was gracious and and giving and just everything that you would want, um, a recipient, uh, to, to be acting like, you know, um, she just felt like the long lost friend that you want her to be. I was going to say, it sounds like basically she is what it says on the tin. It kind of seems like, and I haven't seen anything differently, but you know. (laughs) That's fantastic. Do you want to sing us the song? I would love to. Would you want to hear it? Absolutely. Okay, so I will preface this by saying you need to know a couple of things. Number one, uh, the blue-footed booby is a species of bird. And that species of bird usually hatches two eggs, but usually only one gets raised because the fratricide will happen. The stronger booby will kick the other booby out of the nest. Um, And so that's what you need to know. (laughs) Okay. And have you read the book, Big Magic? I have. It's been, it's been a while. It was closer to when it came out, but I have. That book is all about the fact that, you know, you should just make the thing. Yep. Don't worry about if you can sell it or if it's marketable or whatever, just make the thing. Okay. So this is my response. Blue-footed booby mustn't feel bad at all when a chick gets kicked out of the nest because it's small. No, blue-footed booby mustn't feel bad at all. It's just nature's way. Blue-footed booby mustn't feel bad at all when she looks at her two chicks and thinks which one goes. Y'all, no, it gets kicked out. She watches it as it crawls away to its <coughs> certain death. But hey, it won't have to be a booby for long. And it inspired this fun song. That's nice, right? <laughs> creativity is like baby boobies and you have to set some free. Maybe it's not seriously as hard as we make it out to be. 
Blue-footed booby mustn't feel bad at all when a chick gets kicked out of the nest because it's small. No, blue-footed booby mustn't feel bad at all. It's just nature's way. But hey, it won't have to be a booby for long. And it inspired this fun song. That's nice, right? And it's just <coughs> nature's way. <laughs> That is adorable. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I love it. I love it. Did Were other people around? Did they get to hear it too? Yes. And a couple of the women, it was an all women's conference. Um, it was called the Ultimate Girls Week Away. And it's put together by this woman, Liesl, in Australia. And if you look up UGWA, Ultimate Girls Week Away, you can see that they're doing more stuff. And I highly recommend she gives a great, great time. Um, but anyway, all the girls were around and a couple of them videotaped it. And then they sent me the videotape. So I have the videotape of me sitting there and singing to Liz Gilbert and her laughing. And so it's really just like it was a really special 50th birthday present that I conjured up for myself. Boy, that's a good one. As as big milestone birthday presents to yourself go, that is a really, really good one. Thank you. Wow. I very much enjoyed it. And then, you know, Martha Beck and Liz Gilbert are best friends. Yep. So then, um, you know, I like to pretend that I'm like their weird distant cousin that every once in a while talks about. <laughs> oh, if only. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being a fly on the wall with the two of them? <laughs> you know, right? I just want to come to dinner once. Yeah. <laughs> so then how was how was the, the coach training? How did that expand everything that you're doing? How does it influence what you're doing now? Well, instantly with the coach training, I really realized that um, it just made sense to me, all of it. And it just certain ways that I was kind of struggling in my life, it just helped me to really put the pieces of the puzzle together for myself. And, uh, and it, I don't know, it just, it's like, suddenly it was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And that the singing's a part of it. You know, I'll never stop singing. I'll never stop, you know, probably doing a stage thing here and there because it's addictive and I love it and whatever. But I just have seen like how much better it makes me feel when I use these tools, how much better it makes my, my friends in the program when they used it, we use it on each other, you know, practicing mm -hmm. each other. Um, sorry, my little dog is just losing his mind. Okay. And, um, and so it just became like, wow, this is just so useful and good. I just like it. You know, it just feels like the, like the, when you, your body was like, I don't want to take this pill anymore. Mm -hmm. I've had that feeling with so many things over the years where I'm like, this is done now. And with this, I feel like, oh, this is growing now. Ooh. This is growing something in me that I really enjoy. That's such a powerful thing to realize, too. Yeah. I'm not sure that most of us really listen to signals like that, if we even hear them at all. Do you think that you're more inclined to hear those kinds of things now that you've gone through her program? Because she is so focused on intuition and listening to yourself, even when it doesn't seem to make logical sense or other people say, that's crazy. <laughs> I think that during the whole weight loss 
time when I was just sort of listening to what my body wanted in the gentle realm of things, that's when it started. So I've been at this for a really long time, just out of a personal practice, but I feel like she just synthesized everything. So it just made it really, really accessible. Some of the stuff that maybe I wasn't as practiced at or it had left behind or whatever, it just brought it to the forefront and, and then also expanded and nourished what I was already working with. And she's not the only person that I follow. I really love the work of Carolyn Mace as mm-hmm. well. And she makes me laugh because she yells at people. Stop it. Yes, Stop it. <laughs> the first time I heard a recording of her, I was like, really? <laughs> I know, but she makes me laugh every time she does it. And I love her flat A's because uh, I, I grew up in Ohio. So it makes me feel mm-hmm. like home. So, you know, and uh, so there are a bunch of people that I listen to um, that all kind of are dancing around the same idea of how do you use the gifts of the self as gifts and not as weapons. Oh, that's powerful, too, because they do become weapons so incredibly easily, especially when we're not listening to them as gifts. Yeah. For whatever reason, whether we think we can't or shouldn't or that it's not really real. And what's this thing telling me that that's I I don't know where that's coming from. So I'm going to ignore it. That never seems to end well. No. And I also I've I've watched, you know, I've watched a lot of artists through the years um, struggle. I've struggled at different points. Um, And so. I've learned, I've learned how to see others lose their tether. I've noticed when I'm losing mine. Um, and I, and I, I try to continue to be in all of it in a space that's just curious about how I don't repeat cringeworthy stories. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. Because you can relive the same story over and over again and not realize it because the details are different. Right. Right. And I just don't want the cringeworthy parts anymore. Those are tough. Right. And, I, and I have people in my life that like to remind me about those times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I have people in my brain who like to remind me about those times. <laughs> yeah, I've got those too. I've got those too, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering what you know, is there a particular idea or approach or whatever the right word is that comes to mind as something that listeners might be able to connect with as a way to really listen to themselves and notice their patterns or just notice their own intuition, whichever, whatever comes to mind and feels right to you? So what's sort of interesting in this time of COVID when we've all been kind of locked in and really, um, really smaller worlds than we had. Uh, and so maybe you're, you're noticing something about yourself that when the phone rings, you're irritated instantly. Or when this person, you know, comes into the room that you live with, you think, now what? You know, and those kind of first responses that we have are usually patterned off of a lot of different things, but they start to become the narrative instead of how you really feel about it. So like when I was with my uncle, um, he would ring a bell to, to get me to come to him because uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't speak loud enough to, for me to hear him. And so he'd ring this bell 
And the first two weeks that I was there, I would notice immediately I'd have this, oh, what does he want? And if I, ha- if I went into the room with, with that feeling, then the poor guy got, you know, a feeling of being a burden and, and he wasn't my burden. It was my choice to be there. I chose it. And so when I noticed that in myself, I started to think, well, what's my second feeling there? My second feeling is I'm so glad I'm here to answer his bell. I'm so glad he's not alone. And so that first feeling of annoyance, I just chucked those. And I was like, that's nice that you got to be annoyed at different times in your life. This is not one of those times. And so it's, it's called first response, second response in different places. Um, and I think it's just an interesting thing to play with right now. If your first response isn't something that promotes joy or moving forward or goodness, try your second response. See what that one says. Maybe there's something better there. That's interesting, too, because I don't think most of us notice the second response at all. We get so caught up in the first one that it takes over, runs the show, and then we wonder why we landed in another cringeworthy moment. Right. Right. And meanwhile, you know, you look back on those moments and you think, I didn't mean to say that to him. I love him. Right. Like, I didn't mean to yell at the dog. But I'm so glad I have this dog, you know. So that's a practice that I think is really great in these times right now. <laughs> yeah. I think I think especially now, because we're more likely to notice at least the first response. Now we can start looking for the second one and see what else is, is underneath there. I think that will be enlightening for many, many people. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of enlightening, you have a book and you have a YouTube channel with a web series and and we should know about these too. Yes. So my book um, is called A Pixie's Prescription, A Fun Toolkit for a Feel Better Life. (laughs) I don't know. You know, you need a tagline, right? Um, Everything everything sort of ends up being in musical theater in a story in my head. So that's why the tagline is sung. And it's a book that is... um, my f- my fans have called it a great toilet read, which makes me, gives me a little. <laughs> <joy. laughs> because who doesn't like a great toilet read, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a series of short stories uh, that are all about how I've implemented different um, aspects into my life that help me to feel better. So things like curiosity and play and how my home environment is and what my education is and what I'm eating and who I'm eating it with and all those kind of things. So I have all these short stories and then I give practical tips as to how you can practice to bring more play into your life. It's all free stuff, Um, play, curiosity, all those aspects. And then I give what I call as a yumspiration, which is some sort of something that I cook that um, is really just yummy for your body and delicious. And people have asked for my recipes over the years. So I put a bunch of them in the book. Then it covers everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's only $7.95. It's really a cheap little book. <laughs> uh, I wanted it to be affordable for people. Okay. And then uh, I have a YouTube channel and I have a YouTube series called Little Kate on the Prairie, um, which we've been on a hiatus for just a little bit, but we're coming back. And then um, 
I have a website at thekatechapman.com where you can read about all sorts of things and contact me if you'd like some coaching or if you'd like me to speak at an event or all those kind of things. So what's the web series about, Little Kate on the Prairie? It's to demonstrate constant creative response. So when COVID started, I was in rehearsal for a show that was bound for Broadway. Um, And then overnight, I was in the middle of Colorado in the middle of the prairie. Uh, where I thought I was going to remain for a couple of weeks. And, you know, 19 months later, I'm still out here. Um, But it's about, you know, what do I do now that I have time and space? And, you know, and so we tell stories, we make up songs, we, you know, highlight my artwork. Um, Marianne Ivan, who is my collaborator on that, she um, does a fair amount of making fun of me, which is fun. And so it's just been a way to create something that's uplifting and joyful and inspirational to people. Well, that sounds fantastic, both for you and for anybody who's watching it. So thank you. Great, great win-win for everybody. So is there anything else that we should know about you, Weird Little Stories from Your History, song you feel like singing? Um, I can't think of a little song that I, that I, um, I can't think of a song that pops in my head yet, but, um, I would say I just would inspire everybody to find that place inside of yourself where you feel the most joy and the most safety and then go there as much as possible and explore it. What's on the walls? What's on the floor? What kind of music is playing? Are there birds chirping outside? Is, are there smells in the air? Like, where's your happy place? Where's your place of safety? Practice going there in your mind for a few days and see, just, just see what happens. I love the idea of that. And I hope that people will take you up on it. I hope so too. It sounds, sounds like a great little mini tool in the COVID, hopefully soon post-COVID arsenal. So, <laughs> And I want to thank you so much for this, Nancy. I've, I enjoy your work really so much, and, and your voice is fantastic on the microphone. Well, thank and you. So, you know, that's why it's so great when I hear a great microphone voice. And uh, I just thank you for your work and for your opening your space to me. Well, I am so glad that you contacted me in the first place, and we made this happen because I have enjoyed this immensely. That's this week's episode. My thanks to Kate Chapman for joining me. All her links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll leave a review and share it with a friend. It helps so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.